NFR Extra is a weekly podcast that focuses on the Wrangler National Finals Rodeo and features icons that embody the rodeo and Western lifestyle. Boy, do we have a good episode here. This is uh, this is a one-off. You know, this is a little get-to-know-somebody. And specifically, the president of Las Vegas events, Pat Christensen. He joins the show and you get to learn a lot about where he grew up in Wisconsin, all the happenings there, and where he got the mindset to, to move up the uh, the corporate ladder and the event business and, and where that came from, from Wisconsin, and then coming to Vegas and being a part of the Thomas Mack Center, opening it, uh, being a part of the National Finals Rodeo coming to Vegas. I mean, you get to learn a lot of these things uh, in this episode with him, along with the the inner workings of the Thomas Mack Center and all the cool things that a lot of people don't know uh, that help build that that um, that that arena into what it is today and how it services the, the NFR and all the cool things that happen along that way, as well as his impact on Las Vegas, the event business, and what he means to Las Vegas events and what it means to him. And just the importance of everything of the event business and the culture that we have here in Las Vegas. Yeah, I hope you enjoy this. This is Brightlands Bull, the rodeo news of the week. PRCA Stat of the Week, $9.9 million is the amount the PRCA has paid out through the first five months of the season. Following the upcoming weekend ending March 8th, the PRCA will break the $10 million mark for the 2020 season. Ty Wallace, three-time NFR qualifier, claims Fort Mojave Extreme Bulls title with a two-head average of 182 points. Jeff Metters, the executive producer of the Wrangler National Finals Rodeo, the owner of Geronimo Production, is now the president and general manager of the Cowboy Channel. Current 2020 event leaners are all around Tuff Cooper, Bareback Tim O'Connell, Steer Wrestling Jacob Talley, Team Roping Heading Dustin Esquiza, Team Roping Healer Jade Corkill, Saddle Bronc Rider Wyatt Casper, Tie Down Roper Shad Mayfield, Steer Roper Trevor Brazil, and Bull Rider Dustin Boquette. Today, March 3rd, is the start to the Houston Rodeo. Joining us now, the guys from Cowboy Channel. I'm Justin McKee here at Extreme Bulls at Fort Mojave, stop number three of the Extreme Bulls Tour for the 2020 season of the Professional Rodeo Cowboys Association. And joining me as our sideline reporter, Janie Johnson, here at this uh, desert clash on the Colorado River, Bobby Del Vecchio. Here in the booth, we saw one incredible weekend of bull riding. And we say that a lot, but Janie, this really was an incredible weekend, both nights. It was a whole new level of bull riding. Like I said, the bull riders showed up and the bulls showed up. Yeah. It was a rank pin of bulls. And, you know, we had a lot of qualified rides. Probably one of the best bull ridings I've seen in a while. Yeah, it really was. And the storylines were unbelievable because we had two of the best bull riders in the world in Sage Kimsey, the six-time and reigning world champion, injured in San Antonio, had ankle surgery, not here. Stetson Wright, the world all-around champion, was also injured in San Antonio, questionable on whether he's going to have surgery or when he's going to be uh, coming back, but he was not here. And so, Bobby Delvecchio, we were talking about the two big dogs are out, and who's going to step up? I said it all up? weekend. I said it all weekend. They smelled blood in the water. They knew they wasn't coming. So this was a great opportunity for them to move forward, gain a little ground, win a little bit more money, and get a shot, and they did it. 
There's two they brothers, two brothers from Utah, uh, Tyler and Tim Bingham. Now Tyler competed the first night, and he had two spectacular rides, and that really set the stage for his brother Tim to come the next night. Yeah, absolutely. Both guys NFR qualifiers. Tim comes out here. He says, you know, if he's not going to win first, of course he wants Tyler to be his first choice to win. But he was ready for Big Brother to step up. It didn't quite happen, but the rivalry was fun to watch. Well, Tim shouldn't even be here. I was in San Angelo. Uh, he won the event, but he dislocated his shoulder and had sh uh, shoulder problems. Doctor said, you need to get that thing fixed, but he didn't do it. No, he's been in and out of sports med. He's icing that shoulder every second that he gets. He also said he's having to wear this kind of difficult brace that makes it difficult to uh, maneuver on the bulls. But yeah, he's still making qualified rides. A lot of motivation because after he won San Angelo, he got invited to Houston, and he's like, if I'm going to ride at Houston, might as well ride at the American. Well, yeah, if you can power through, why not power through for the biggest rodeo of the year? I think a lot of guys are hoping that they are going to draw the bull bragging rights this year. We saw him in the championship round the second night. Janie, we had an opportunity to tell his story. Tell, tell the folks listening to the podcast a little bit about this bull and, and where he came from and why, why we made such a big deal out of him. Well, he's a bull of the Honeycutt family, and he has performed each and every time, but he had cancer, and they had to remove his eye. So the, he had to basically readjust, relearn to buck in a different direction because of that eye. But you know what? He came out on top, and he was 92 points tonight, yeah. and that bull is just incredible. That, yeah. that bull was. He, I mean, tonight what he did, you don't you won't see too many bulls like that. They may give you one good rare in the air and jump and kick and move forward, but he was four, five times this. I mean, he had to be three, four feet in the air off his front feet and then coming with them big giant kicks to the back. He, he was He's a supernatural kind of bull. Well, he ought to be special. Yeah, we, and we got we got to tie up the bow just a little bit. Uh, a couple of things, and that is that Tyler Bingham ends up winning money. His brother Tim rides a bull in the championship round for seven seconds. That would have been right there with him. But huge efforts. They're both going to come out of here with some points and some money. Ty Wallace was number 25 in the world standings. He wins with a 92 on our featured one-eyed bull to win the event <laughs> from the Honeycutt Rodeo Company. The family that produced this event. We made a feature about Bragging Rice, the bull, about how he was the number one money bull two years ago at the final. And then he got the cancer. They took the eyeball out. They were wondering if he would actually, this was his first bull, uh, first out, if he would actually live up to his old reputation because they had to switch deliveries and put him on the right side instead of the left. He's and train him to do that. Train him to do it. And then he was maybe the best out <laughs> ever. Hey, we've got we've got a big week on the Cowboy Channel. Janie Johnson, we are going to the American at AT&T Stadium. But first things first, Cowboy Channel is going to be a busy place this week. Oh, my goodness. I cannot wait. I have watched it as a fan for years. I'm so excited to finally be there and be a part of this whole exciting event. Well, we're glad to have you. And uh, hey, you know, I'd like to mention to the fans listening to us that Janie's dad was a world champion bronc rider, Clint That's right. Johnson. That's she right. She don't talk much about her dad when she's around all these cowboys. Well, well especially not at bull riding. So. <laughs> we're glad to have her, and we're glad that we have a lot of information to feed you this week as we are going to gear up for maybe the biggest of all the Americans in the history. So. March 7th and 8th, AT&T Stadium. We're going to have Western Sports Roundup on every night. Then we're going to have the Houston Rodeo. After that, we're going to have Road to the American. We're going to feature some of the highlights and big stories. 
leading up to the American. Thank you, Bobby Del Vecchio. Thank, thank you. you, Janie Johnson. Thank you, NFR Extra. I'm Justin McKee. We'll talk to you next time. We're moving on down the road. The American coming up this weekend. Hi, I'm Haley Kinsel, and you're listening to NFR Extra. Looking for tickets to the Wrangler National Finals Rodeo? StubHub is the official secondary and fan-to-fan site of the rodeo. Fans can buy and sell their tickets through a safe and secure online marketplace. Visit nfrexperience.com. This gentleman sitting here with us. This is a great episode as far as it comes to beginnings of the NFR coming here. Thomas Mack Center, where the NFR is. But the individual with us, and we're going to learn a lot about his life and how it led to where we're today with what's going on with the rodeo events in the city. Uh, Las Vegas, I'm talking about. And the person I'm talking about is Pat Christensen, president of Las Vegas events. You know, he's been a part of the NFR since 1985 when it arrived, but it didn't start there for him. You know, it goes back to Wisconsin where he grew up, uh, his passion for wrestling and where that led him to, to winning an NCAA title and what that propelled to him from there and how that connection to Vegas worked out and the UNLV wrestling program and the building of the Thomas Mack Center, Dennis Frock, all the magic you've ever heard about that coming to fruition. And then not only that, you know, kind of what that all offered up for Pat and where he found this passion with the event business from the 80s and not just being a part of the NFR but many things coming to, to Las Vegas uh, running Thomas Mack Center running Sam Boyd Stadium taking those to new heights and, and building new new successes that you know that, as you can hear through the story that were never part of the plan just kind of you know you adapt to what and survive to what's coming next and Pat tells you about all that and then really growing the business from within and, and what happens when he goes to Las Vegas events and, and and making things happen there. You're going to get this broad painting of Pat's beginning, where he came to, wrestling, rodeo, all the cool things he's been a part of in his life, and where he's at now with Las Vegas events. Welcome to the show, Pat Christensen. Glad to be here. Uh, two doors down. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for coming on the show. Uh, I've been longing to get you on this. This is going to be a, this is going to be a fun little ride. I'm looking forward to it. Sweet. So let's start, let's get to know you. Let's start off where, let's go back. Where, where were you raised? Where, where, where did Pat Christensen become Pat? I was raised in a suburb south of, uh, sub, a southern suburb of Milwaukee, Oak Creek, Wisconsin. Uh, on the lake, right on Lake Michigan. Uh, was there, I had a good uh, uh, upbringing. Had eight brothers and sisters. Whoa. Wow. A big family. Yeah, um, it was a good suburb. I mean, it was a it was a uh, wasn't farmland, wasn't ranch land, uh, wasn't city, just a suburb. It was like Midwest, right? The I mean, Midwest. Yeah, you you had a nice Midwest. Oh, that's awesome. So one of the things that I'm very familiar with is that you had there was some success you had in Wisconsin. What what happened as you got a little older and you got involved? Where did where did you get into wrestling? I started wrestling in fifth grade, and. Uh, my brother wrestled, uh, so I kind of followed in, in his tracks and uh, got really committed to it in high school. Uh, went to state my sophomore, junior year. Uh, my senior year, I was 27-0 and 0 with 21 pins, and I lost in the sectional semifinal, and I was crushed because, you know, my goal was to be a state champion. So I didn't uh, literally, not only was I not a state champion, I never placed in the state tournament. So, Okay. All right, because that's that's going to set the stage for what we're going to talk about now. So what did that create in you, though? I mean, like that kind of getting there, you wanted that, and it, it didn't. I mean, because we deal around with a lot of champions. What happened here with that? You know, I was naively, uh, I wasn't, I didn't, I didn't know what I might be able to do in wrestling, but 
I knew I wanted to try again. And fortunately, at, uh, um, I got a, I wouldn't call it a recruiting trip. The, my recruiting trip, uh, I get some interesting from the University of Wisconsin. Uh, my recruiting trip was I took the Badger bus lines down in the morning, uh, walked around the campus, had lunch at the uh, Brat House. Um, they sent me back on the uh, bus at 5 o'clock, and uh, I had basically committed. I said, I'm I'm coming. I'm gonna. I'll walk on. But uh, so we fortunately, I, you know, with so many kids in our family, I get financial aid. So I kind of made it uh, the walk on work. Nice. And you, so clearly, you're coming from high school. You know, had some success and things that you didn't achieve. I mean, what was? And I think I know the answer, but it's nice to hear. What was your goal coming to Wisconsin? What What did you? What were the bar and the goals that you wanted to set? You know, my freshman year was just to get as good as I could. I just didn't know how good I could be. Uh, but you know, I, I didn't have a good wrestling coach in program in Oak Creek. And since then, I found out how important that is. Uh, so the first, uh, literally the first six weeks in the wrestling room, I'd established myself and made the team. So all of these guys have been a couple state champs from uh, other school, I mean, for other states and then Wisconsin. I beat all of them out, and I made the team my freshman year and was uh, fourth in the Big Ten, which earned me a trip to the NCAA tournament. So now, I, you know, after my freshman year, I set my sights on being a NCAA champ. So as we go through, where did you start to feel like you could become that champ? Well, I mean, what did you feel that? Uh, I think after my freshman year, because we had so many, so many uh, wrestlers in the room that were really, really good. And in 1974, we had a guy named Rich Lawinger, uh, I went to uh, graduate from high school in 72. Um, in 74, that was just after my sophomore year, he won. He was Wisconsin's first NCAA champion. So I looked at him. I, I wrestled Rich a lot. So, uh, you know, I thought, well, I can do this too. Nice. Give you that kind of that, just that complete confidence, right, that you're there, you're relevant. Well, at the time, West, uh, Wisconsin, the two coaches that uh, took over the program a year before I got there just completely – reestablished the, uh, you know, grew it into, uh, you know, probably wouldn't be able to do that today, but I think in that, in the era of uh, Dwayne Clevin, who was my wrestling coach, uh, we had 12, uh, he had 12 national NCAA champs when they had none before that. And that's in, in maybe nine years. And there were some other individuals around or coming, right, that you had that a lot of people know. Um, yeah, so at uh, 158, weight class just below me was Lee Kemp. Lee ended up being a three-time NCAA champ, was runner-up as a freshman, a three-time world champ. Uh, and I had Ed Batch, who was a Big Ten, two-time Big Ten champ above me. Uh, you know, our, our wrestling room was stacked. Mm. So uh, clearly you're around champions. You're, this is a new era of wrestling, it sounds like. Um, what what else was going on? You, you, you're obviously going to school. What? What are you planning on doing? I mean, this, you can't wrestle forever. I mean, what's kind of planning on coming out of Wisconsin? I was a, I was a PE major. Nice. So what I remember are the 745 walks across campus. And if you've ever been on the Wisconsin campus, it's a 25-minute uh, walk. Oh, no, it's, it's a 20-minute walk, but it's 25 minutes in the snow. And I remember my 745 classes getting into a swimming pool, getting out of a swimming pool, and then walking to my next class. So... Uh, you know, while the, this, the, uh, uh, the degree wasn't that difficult, actually it was kind of interesting because half the degree was PE classes, you know, stuff that you, I might, and the way I looked at it is I've got to get A's in every one of my PE classes because I'm in 
all the sciences with people that are trying to get into med school. I mean, yeah. in you know, lecture halls of 400 people uh, in zoology and uh, in anatomy. And uh, so uh, so the, it was a kind of an AC uh, goal to, to, to get to my goal of a three point and it worked out pretty well. But, you know, for the most part, I focused on, you know, uh, wrestling. So clearly you're bound around a bunch of brainy folks, good thinkers, right? I mean, like just in different, it sounds like different enough philosophies as well of thinking. So how do you close out Wisconsin? What happens? I, I think there's, you, your career takes off. Well, you know, I, I was a, a freshman, sophomore year, went to the Nationals, never, never, I went to NCAA, never didn't win a match. My junior year, I was, uh, had, uh, got injured, didn't even get to the National Tournament, and I, uh, senior year, I just commit recommitted myself. Unfortunately, things came together. Uh, had a good year and ended, ended up winning the uh, NCAA wrestling tournament. So, would you say at that point there's something that that you know not everyone's a champion, you know, and there's and definitely in wrestling there's either one or the other that gets to win. The premise of here is this kind of something that catapults the rest of your life, you know, coming out of Wisconsin being a champion. I mean, is that yeah, we would we wouldn't be sitting here talking. I. Uh, what's interesting is. Uh, guy at the time that started the UNLV wrestling program, a guy named Dennis Vinfrock, was in Tucson in 76. Uh, he had convinced another guy that was in Tucson, Mark Torella, to come the year before uh, I came to, to Las Vegas uh, to be the head coach. And uh, so he seeing me win that tournament, I had made the decision after three years of teaching high school and coaching that I wanted to go – I wrote letters to 10 warm weather schools to show you what my priorities were. I didn't really care if I was, I, I wanted to get a master's degree and, uh, but I didn't care if I was, I didn't know how far I wanted to go with coaching. So it didn't matter to me. Uh, but, uh, fortunately, um, I got an offer to come out here and, and the offer was real unique. I was ready to go to LSU. Um, they offered me an $8,000 stipend to go to LSU. Nice. But the week before, a couple of weeks before I, I came, Dennis Finfrock, who was kind of recruiting me, he'd be calling me every week, but just it, it didn't click yet. Well, a job opened up, event coordinator of athletics. And what's interesting about this job is it became the new, it, I didn't know it at the time, but it became, I was, in Dennis's words, you're the assistant wrestling coach, and then you got that other job. Uh, but the other job was at the time, the uh, Rebels, uh, basketball team played at the convention center, 7,000 seat venue and the silver bowl, which was a 30,000 seat venue. And my job as event coordinator was to manage all the events to get the ushers, ticket takers, do the parking, uh, do the ticketing, uh, and then be assistant wrestling coach. So, uh, that paid more. So I came out and, uh, it was 13,500, I think for that job when I came out. So, okay. All right. Paint a great picture here. You, you leave Wisconsin, you're a champion, you, you, you earned your way. Now you have a mindset, you can do a lot of things, right? You're, you, and, and then Vegas comes calling. Wrestling is the key. The convention center. So the convention center was this kind of this uh, venue for, the, for UNLV basically at the time. Is that correct? I mean, Well, what the, the, the rotunda was just a part of the convention center. It was like 7,000 seats. It, what Las Vegas did at the time, the rotunda was built for Rebel basketball. The Silver Bowl was built for rebel football, uh, but it wasn't built by the university. It was built by the city or the convention center. So you didn't, rebels really didn't have a home at the time. So we would do our events at these venues. 
The reason I bring it up, there's a little foreshadowing with the convention center and your career and things like that. So, okay, you're in Vegas. Uh, what was Vegas like when you got, I mean, what was it like in the early 80s and what was going on? I mean, what was Vegas like here? Well, my first impression of, uh, of Las Vegas was it was hot. Mm. Got here in August and uh, I think it was 110 or 112. Yeah. You, know, you know, they say it's a dry heat. Well, it's hot. Uh, <laughs> uh, but it was so much different than today. It was obviously a, a, a whole lot more metropolitan and more entertainment than Wisconsin or may, many other cities at the time. But, uh, you know, at the time, I think it was only 500,000 uh, population. And you had hotels like the uh, Dunes, the Stardust, the Frontier, the Hacienda. Uh, those were the booming hotels, the Holiday Casino. They, they had, those were the hotels at, at, at the time. And uh, I remember when I first came out, um, I couldn't get a check for the first week. And we had a connection. One of the boosters uh, owned the Holiday Casino. So Dennis, uh, my boss, gave me a stack of green, blue, and pink uh, cards uh, one for uh, the breakfast was a 99 cent breakfast at the holiday casino the the uh, yellow was lunch which was normally a dollar 99 and the dinner was 399 uh, so i ate free at buffets <laughs> but it wasn't really free because they lined it up with slot machines so uh, whatever money i had in my pocket went in before we got in but the, uh, to this day i can't eat a buffet <laughs> i od'd in a month on buffets i hear you on that so, all right, so now we're, there's something coming. Where does the, the, this Thomas Mack Center concept come from? Where You're there. You're right for the, you know, kind of the growing of this event business. Clearly, you're a fan of concerts and special events. How does the Thomas Mack Center get created or come about or, you know, how does, how does that happen? Well, you, you talk about fate. You know, you said, well, I kind of earned my way to Las Vegas. Well, it's more like fate because a, a PE degree doesn't necessarily uh, launch you into uh, the, the, uh, the city of entertainment, you know, uh, the, what's going on here. But the fact that I got that call and was a great event coordinator for athletics, uh, they dropped the wrestling program in 83. Uh, at the same time, they were opening uh, Thomas and Mack Center. Uh, the, uh, the boosters who put it together – when it was originally designed and funded, it was funded as it was a 15,000 seat venue. Uh, somewhere along the line, someone gave them permission to go to 18,000, but they didn't give them any additional funding. So when uh, we came on six months before Thomas and Mack Center opened, uh, Dennis had convinced the Board of Regents that uh, a guy that had you know, he'd been run. He he had gone to all these other venues because he was assistant AD. So he's been all these other venues. So he knew how to run Thomas and Mac, and he had a, he had a plan. Uh, they bought into it, and uh, the uh, so he he uh, asked me to join him. But the reason they needed someone is the the people that that got it funded, the people that put together the uh, got, uh, got the original funding and design really didn't have anything planned. There was nothing, uh, the floor wasn't ordered. The, uh, there weren't seats that were, there was so much that, not just from a, uh, a fund, a funding perspective or a revenue perspective, but just a, uh, it, operationally. So uh, we came on interim, in, uh, we had an interim, uh, interim jobs to, we had to see how we, how we did. Nice. Uh, and the whole philosophy Dennis had, and I think what, uh, uh, again, it, it, it is, uh, 
one of the, the more critical moments in the history of Las Vegas is he, his vision was that the only way this is going to make it is if it, if it operates as an entrepreneurial, it's, it, it operates like a Madison Square Garden, a Forum, a Houston Summit, Oakland. All, so we went around to all of those venues and cut our, I mean, we tr- got trained, we'd spend two, three days going to events, staying there all day, seeing how they uh, manage the front of house, see how they manage the back of house. And came back and put together a plan based on that. And so uh, when we opened, uh, we were very successful because for a couple of reasons. One, Vegas had the biggest venue Vegas had before that was a 7,000 was the Rotunda, which was really a convention center. They mm-hmm. didn't want to do much more. The Aladdin seventh music. So, uh, you know, so, so family shows, uh, motorsports, a lot of that stuff wasn't even here. So, we were very successful uh, concerts. Uh, we did 24 concerts a year. Uh, we did motorsports, did Disney on Ice, did the family show. So we started with a pretty good menu of events, which started to pay the bills. So as as time goes on, the NFR comes, right? And we'll, we'll, we're going to come back to this, but that was a big part of this. But also through the 80s and the 90s, you had your hands in a lot of things. I mean, how was it developing this entrepreneurial ship you know, with 18,000 seats, what was it like developing your skill set as, as a champion uh, and what you saw coming through there with Dennis and, and then you taking over in the 90s? Well, probably the most fortunate thing was no one wanted to mess with uh, those that were growing the golden goose. Mm. And it did. It just the revenues kept growing and growing because we kept doing more and more events. So they let us alone. And on a campus, that's not normal. Uh, so uh, we... You know, for a good 10, 12 years, developed a, a, a completely unique style of management that that drove people to do things well, like professional sports franchises, mm-hmm. very creatively, very uh, a lot of uh, different, you know, college campus, uh, you know, Thomas and Mac. And we also uh, took over the Silver Bowl. So uh, we got our hands on these two venues and didn't, and, and because we didn't know any differently, we started to operate them differently than even the the professional sports franchises. So out of that, I got this real opportunity to, uh, uh, to grow the, uh, you know, my, my skills in management leadership through doing these things through people. Yeah. I mean, and you almost everything was in house, correct? That, that yeah, you, we wouldn't, again, I, you know, at the convention center, I, I saw the, uh, uh, you know, at first we did uh, food service in house because it was very difficult. To, uh, when Thomas and Mac Center opened, there was uh, again it was underfunded by probably ten million dollars, so there was no pavement in the parking lot. The concession stands uh, were stubbed for electrical and plumbing, nothing else. They were they were cement. The concourse was cement. The suites were cement. So when you look at uh, anybody that's been in a suite and you see the different suites, well, the reason they are have different architecture and construction is. The suite owner had to build out their own suite. You know, we twelve thousand dollars to I think thirty thousand at half t- half court. And hey, here, yeah, we'll we'll give you our hours where you can bring <laughs> your crew in, and uh, we'll prove the design. And you go, you do your, you uh, go ahead and uh, do your suite. So uh, we had all these things that not only did we have to pay our bills, but we had to finish the uh, uh, the, the construction, finish the the, the building. So uh, the you know we had our hands full. So great success. You're building your career. And then a job comes up the end of the nineties coming to the new millennium, Las Vegas events. Where did that, where did that start develop? And you know, why did you, why did you take that position? Well, you know, we were, 
I was at UNLV for 21 years, 18 at Thomas and Mac in the stadium. Um, we were, I think at our peak, we were at about 175 events at the Thomas and Mac and then did another 20 at the stadium. Uh, lots of concerts, uh, lots of events, but boy, being in the venue business is a venue management business. It's a 24 seven job and it's a lot of stress. And I, you know, I grew up, I had two kids, uh, while I was doing that. Um, and we built Cox Pavilion, which, uh, again, now we have a third. And it got to the point where we created this monster. I mean, I wasn't really willing to put in the hours and do what I did. So when uh, the LVE job came up, it was, at the time, you know, 15 people. We, when I left Thomas and Mac, there was 110 full-time people and 600 part-time. And we're managing a good 180 events a year. So uh, at LVE, at the time, it was 15 people. And there were about... Uh, maybe a dozen events. So it was appealing because not only did I have a more, you know, a nicer hours, work hours, and I wasn't working weekends. Uh, it was a small staff and really hadn't started growing yet. I don't think they, I don't think they really had uh, met their potential in terms of the events that they could secure. And so how has that grown since, I mean, clearly there's been success for the past, well, 20 years you've been there. How's that success been? I mean, this grown of Las Vegas events. Well, like the city. Uh, you look at the, the growth. I, I came here in 2001. Uh, the, the big turnaround in the hotels was 89 with Mirage. And you look at the growth during that time in what we were able to do at Las Vegas events is connect all of the different hotel properties, uh, and the NFR really started that, but we connected uh, them to these uh, events besides the NFR, which is like the NBA Summer League, uh, Rock and Roll Marathon, uh, NASCAR, um, just uh, music festivals. So it, it became, LVE became this connection to bring other events here. Uh, the first year I got here, we did the World Cup jumping and dressage, mm -hmm. and we're on our seventh time this year. Uh, you know, in 20 years. So LVE uh, used to be, uh, you know, the production, the, the crew, the the the, uh, the uh, company that produced the National Finals Rodeo. And then there were a couple other things. So in addition to the National Finals Rodeo, we uh, started booking a lot of other and securing a lot of other things. So that was the 20-minute pitch for your kind of where you came in Las Vegas events. We're going to switch gears because you brought it a couple times here at the end. Let's take a little break. We'll be back in two minutes. Howdy, I'm Bob Tolman, and this is NFR Extra. To celebrate the 35th anniversary of the National Finals Rodeo in Las Vegas, LVE and PRCA present the top 35 most memorable moments. As a tiny tyke, Ty Murray set his sights on breaking the six-strong world all-around titles record held by his hero, Larry Mayhem. It took enduring surgeries on both knees and shoulders to get it done. But Murray achieved his lifelong goal at the 1998 NFR, establishing a new record with his seventh all-around gold buckle. This is what living right's all about. This is what trying hard is all about. That's what being a cowboy is all about. It was fitting that Mahan was watching arena side and was the first to shake Ty Murray's hand. Murray, who was the 1988 overall and bareback riding rookie of the year, 
won those seven world all-around crowns in the years spanning 1989 through 1998. That first year in 1989, Murray was just 20 years old and he became the youngest all-around world champion ever, breaking the mark set by Jim Shoulders 40 years earlier in 1949. Murray racked up 19 total NFR qualifications in Rodeo's three rough stock events and won six straight NFR all-around titles from 1989 through 1994 before injuries would break the streak. Ty Murray also won bull riding world titles in 1993 and 1998. Murray's versatility was legendary and he was inducted into the Pro Rodeo Hall of Fame in 2000. Wherever you listen to the NFR Extra podcast, whether it be on iTunes, Spotify, iHeart, Google Play, or even YouTube, hit that subscribe button so you don't miss an episode. And let us know what you think of this episode or any episode by leaving a comment. Hi, I'm world champion Jacob Scrawley, and you're listening to NFR Extra. Now, let's, we're going to talk about Wrangler National Finals Rodeo. Let's go back again. Let's go back to what, and this is more of a business side. What was Vegas like on a business level prior to the NFR getting here? Well, especially in December, it, you know, it was uh, growing slowly. Nothing like it did in 89. It was, you know, it's prospering. But December was a really slow time. Uh, the hotels would uh, furlough employees and do uh, maintenance uh, during that time. Uh, so the uh, that was the impetus behind and the uh, the real interest in bringing the National Finals Rodeo here. So, and so the first two years, from what I hear of, and I was, uh, I was probably like a, teenager I, I, don't know, I was super little what, what was the first two years then of our, from what I understand it wasn't what we're we've expect or what we what we live in today or even what they did in the late 80s or the 90s what was the first two years with the NFR what was it like well I think people were you know there's a lot of controversy over what kind of an event it would be it's going from Oklahoma City to Las Vegas um, so the first two years it didn't sell out in fact a lot of the hotels uh, you know people uh, president of Las Vegas events job was to go out and get as many of these tickets sold to the hotels. Um, and after that, like even in the third, fourth year, you know, a lot of them sold their tickets back, which they regret. Uh, but the, uh, uh, so the first two years, both Thomas and Mac, uh, we were, well, we didn't even have a video board. Uh, so the, but the, uh, the event itself was kind of finding its way. But but at the end of the day, the, and I just want to make this clear: the production, or not necessarily the production, the event, the competition side, was still as good as like it's always been, right? I mean, the first two years of like Joe Beaver, everyone that was competing. Well, not o- not only was it as good a competition because the formula for the National Finals Rodeo is uh, the same formula today. It's uh, its success is based on you've got the top fifteen contestants against the best stock. Uh, and going for now $10 million uh, and a gold buckle. Uh, and it's all it's all kind of uh, choreographed to this very succinct two-hour show that has high energy and, and uh, high entertainment. And that started immediately in 85. All of those, the, the timing of the show, uh, getting it to, uh, uh, to be uh, synced a whole lot uh, faster, uh, you, there weren't as many, you know, the security around the show. Everything got cleaned up. Uh, Sean Davis, the general manager, the guy that literally cast the t- final vote to get it here, became our general manager, and he was until just last year. Uh, that is the uh, first thing he did is he understood 
what was missing, and I think he he added those ingredients. So, and where did you, okay, and one of the things I want to add, though, when we started talking about Thomas Maxim, when they came in there, a lot of the athletes that we interviewed that were competing in Oklahoma coming here talked about the changing of how it actually changed the sport because most of them were in these, these kind of these, they weren't in tight venues where the timing was like one Mississippi, two Mississippi, make a move. They had days to, to, to do things, and all of them, like they talked a lot about how the game changed coming out of, for instance, steer wrestling. All of a sudden you had under four seconds, you had to pull down a steer where usually you have a much longer time and, and not as quick. So definitely involved that. So on top of that, there was also other success started to happen. When did you start seeing the success? It kind of impacted the, I guess, the sold-out mentality. There were some ticketing things that were starting to happen. What were some things that happened to when the success started to kick in? Well, first of all, you bring, bring up the uh, – the uh, the athletes adapting to that venue well it's 170 feet uh, long you know it's about probably 50 to 150 feet different than any venue they've been in before uh, but i remember never forget i forget who it was the first year when they asked him about you know what's it like and i think somebody was looking for criticism uh, on the venue, he said, "Well, for the kind of money they're paying in Vegas, I'd stop a steer on I'd stop a steer on a dime." <laughs> so uh, I think the fact they I think the contestants really uh, were appreciative of uh, that Vegas stepped up, doubled the, the the dollars, and then they adapted to the the size of the venue. But the uniqueness of that venue, and I really think the reason it's grown, one of the reasons it's grown, is Thomas and Mack Center was built as a basketball venue, in when we came on, it was it even had cement to the court. That's how committed they mm. were to building a basketball-only venue. So Dennis had to go back to the legislature and ask for a quarter million the first two weeks on the job to blow out something they just poured uh, because you wouldn't have done the rodeo. You wouldn't have done uh, many of the events we did. But the, the beauty of it being designed the way it was is the sight lines. Mm. Uh, the, if you have any seats in the plaza – or anywhere in the venue compared to the venues, other venues out there today, uh, there are no sight lines that like that for rodeo. There's no sight lines like that for sports. So the, the fact that they built suites into this, had one concourse, all of that has managed to work now for 35 years. Yeah, it's so intimate. And I want to, you know, one of my, it's kind of one of my favorites, but when we talk about the intimate sidelines, the dugouts, I love the seats. Those are brilliant. Uh, feels like Rome. Uh, when you're up there, but you see everything, you don't miss a beat. So let's let's kind of shift a little bit because there's another kind of a bigger beast that you, you handle as well with Las Vegas events, Cowboy Christmas. We let's talk a little bit. Where where did Cowboy Christmas kind of begin? And you know, we don't not so much details, but to the point where it was somewhere and now it's somewhere big. You know, it uh, quite not quite frank. Uh, quite frankly, I'm not sure whose idea it was, uh, but it started at uh, uh, Cashman Field. Uh, and uh, it was kind of a one-of-a-kind Western shopping experience that they wanted to put as the second year of the NFR. Uh, so uh, I think it made a stop at the uh, Tropicana and uh, it Cashman for you know, almost 10 years, and then it outgrew Cashman, and it moved to the convention center. So uh, it, it grew this. It became known for the... Um, the, the most unique country, uh, you know, Cowboy Christmas was a the, a gift show, a country gift show like none other. It uh, they they restricted the uh, they kind of gauged what kind of products got in and didn't get in, and the, 
you know, you see a lot, you go to many, a lot of other rodeos, you'll see a lot of different, uh, you know, local products. You'll see mattresses. You won't see mattresses yeah. at, uh, at Thomas and Max Center. So it really is refined to what that the, uh, the Western uh, uh, shopper is looking for. So, okay, so, and this is, I, this is kind of the, I think, the cool part about Cabot Christmas and your leadership under LBE. So, it, it, gift show, whatever it was prior to that. But what did you see it as? You took over LBE and what it could become for this, and, and we're going to get into this, but this, what, what the NFR is starting to become into the overall city. And that, well, uh, it could be, it, I saw an experience. You know, it, it was already it, it just really fine operated, uh, great vendors. Uh, great. I mean, you had a good crowd, but there wasn't a buzz. There was, I mean, it's just shopping. So uh, what we did over the next uh, you know, five, ten years is integrated uh, live, uh, different live things. So you see, today we've got the uh, rodeo live stage. Uh, we've got the we've got a, a, a saloon. We have the uh, a rodeo arena, which we do the junior world finals. So much, probably a couple dozen interactive things that we've grown as part of it. And, and quite frankly, we're already talking about another dozen next year. So the fun of Cowboy Christmas be, 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 became that uh, it, it could become so much more than a shopping experience. And that's what, and it has. So, but I, because we, we talked about this a little bit earlier in, in that you're getting to know you. So here we are full circle. You're back at the convention center. And, you know, but I think now when you're coming back, you have experience. You went through, and God knows all the hoops and things you had to dance around at Thomas Mack Center, but would you say that a lot of that experience of what you learned from entrepreneurship to apply to the convention center for this Cowboy Christmas? Well, it's not so much the convention center. It's the business itself. Um, I cut my teeth producing events, you know, promoting events, uh, hosting events. So I kind of knew, uh, you know, understood the business, but... This provided me and LB an opportunity to grow something year after year. That's unique. Uh, and, and to just sit on it and do the same old thing just didn't, to me, well, first of all, it wouldn't have been any fun. Uh, so uh, the, the fact that, you know, we had this vision of it uh, growing everything, uh, the two things we produce, uh, the, the National Finals Rodeo at Thomas and & Mack and then Cowboy Christmas, to me, became the leaders behind all of that. So let's let's take another shift over because there's a lot of pieces of the pie to this NFR. It's not just the competition. Hotels, partnerships, viewing parties. Where did this start? And once again, the new leadership point for you know what you were seeing and uh, credit to you and the team, but where did this? Where did you start to see the partnership with the hotels and the activation and how to use? Like you touched on a little bit on the LV side, but the NFR has flourished with this. What, where did this start to get going for you? The the, the, the National Finals Rodeo has never been a profit center for the city. Could be, I and mean, tickets could be much much higher than they are right now, and uh, could be uh, more profitable. It always has been uh, used uh, as a means to bring more people to town, but we only had seventeen thousand seats. So how do you bring? more people we've been sold out over 20 years uh, when, when I got here so uh, the uh, the thing that started to to grow first was and was already in place was one of the contracts I think it was in the late 90s negotiated with the PRCA to get the rights because it was sold out you couldn't get tickets to do viewing parties uh, and actually they weren't viewing parties at the time we call them a satellite feed and they, I think that was it and it really wasn't promoted at all it was what we did is 
if you were a sponsor or a host hotel, you got a feed, the live feed from the Thomas and Mac, not from the network that was uh, was uh, sh- uh, shooting the show, um, to your hotel. But at first, it was just in the, the hotel. There were no rooms. Uh, it would be in the bars. It would be in the casino. So it just kind of created buzz. And there might have been a dozen that took advantage of, uh, of uh, doing the, the feed. So... Uh, so we had that ingredient already in place. Uh, and what, when you look at Las Vegas events role, Las Vegas events role isn't to, to generate more price, bring more visitors. And to me, bring more visitors, you've got to get the hotels involved. And to get the hotels involved, we got to figure out, so we got to motivate them to do things more than just book rooms. So, um, you know, we started talking to them about different events. Uh, concerts at first and then that was gift shows that they would do and um, I don't remember how many it was it could have been yeah I remember when we first started uh, when we first came here we used to draw for the uh, uh, the seven host hotels of the contestants out of a hat out of a hat (laughs) they sit around they sit around a room and to make it fair and there might be 12 15 hotels in there uh, and today, and then it, 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 uh, because the, after 80, you know, what's this whole, these, uh, these other hotels came on the quality hotel, you know, more and more quality. Every time you did one, uh, we were able to get the contestants, the higher quality. So we basically picked them and, and we changed that. So the, what we did slowly, but surely is each year grew sponsorship through hotels and they creating uh, not just uh, we not just promoting their brands and promoting what they do, but they had to create a unique experience, or they really wouldn't be able to compete. I mean, it's a real partnership when you talk about what we do together here in the city. I mean, it, it it's a big part, but the other part is that that a lot of, there's a lot of changeover in the casino world. So, what what kind of strategy do you do to kind of keep in front of that to make sure that you know you're constantly engaging them? I mean, there's things that you guys do that obviously clearly keeps a good connection with the hotels. Well, the fact that we've done this 35 years helps <laughs> because there's a template. It's not uh, what you would hope is each year they would refine it and do a little bit better, in which they have. Uh, so, you know, we started it probably 16, 17 years ago, growing the connection, uh, growing the uh, three components of what has become the, uh, the success of the National Files Rodeo and the NFR experience. And to me, the first is the core, which is the competition itself at Thomas and Mac. But if you look at that, that is always tweaked every year. You look at the experience around, uh, you look at Cowboy Corral, you look at the shoe, uh, you look at the pro rodeo zone. So it's, there's not just, we just don't take it for granted. People are coming here to just sit and watch the rodeo. It's a great experience for them there. Uh, and then the show itself has evolved. Uh, but then the, what the hotels have done is create literally couple hundred different uh, custom rodeo related or country related experiences that people get to choose from uh, and they're all kind of packaged with viewing parties now you know viewing parties literally were you just hung around the bar uh, you know hung around you're playing blackjack and you're looking up and no oh, there there you go and he's uh you just got a three point out of the just he just, <laughs> he just stopped a steer on a dime with the the three point <laughs> record uh, but the uh, uh grew from that to uh uh, hotels creating their own rooms and then getting a uh, uh, getting guys like uh, Trevor Brazil to come down. They sponsor and sign autographs. 
uh, let's grow from that grown from that to now you've got uh, i think 25 hotels that have viewing parties yes. so so you've got these participatory events you've got the uh, uh, the, the team, our team roping event over at uh, South Point. You've got a barrel racing event now at the Orleans. You've got the Junior World Final. You've got participatory event. You've got four or five shopping experiences throughout the day. You've got Sorority America. Then you've got 25 viewing parties at night. And that, and then that's just getting started. You're just yes. getting warmed up uh, for the night. So it, it, uh, the NFR experience is, I, I liken it to a, uh, to any. Uh, music festival you've seen out there, uh, Coachella, Stagecoach, you name it. It's a festival on steroids. Well, the, the thing I always add, right, this is the, the, the sweetness of this. You, you talked about other rodeos, going to these, um, and there's similar things that happen to these other rodeos. But we have all the artists, or let's just not say all the artists, but there's artists all throughout the country that come here. A lot of these things are free. 60 plus artists. Yes. So the uniqueness of uh, NFR, again, is it focuses on the contestant. Again, another thing Sean was insistent on. If you look at those two hours, yeah, we have an opening. We do 15 minutes of an opening. But after that, it's all cowboy. And uh, so there's no entertainment there. But the rest of the city, the rest of the time, uh, there's uh, as much as you, uh, as much as you, as, as long as you can stay up. <laughs> So uh, one of the parts that really makes the, the we're talking we're back Thomas Max Center talking about the competition, but the production what like the production has evolved. You mentioned earlier there was no video board. Take us a little timeline of some production that is where it was and where it's at now. Yeah, so in '85 when we first started doing the rodeo, uh, the after every you know the, the timing was improved but after every ride you would have the same you know we had this little mariachi band a five-piece mariachi band in, in the back of the locker rooms and they would play a live song the same song after every ride so every night you would you got 95 uh mariachi band uh, songs and, you know maybe i you know give them credit maybe they did do a couple different ones throughout the night <laughs> but they sounded the same and then I think Sean, I don't know what year he decided it's time for some rock and roll. And uh, I think at the time we T and M got renovated, got a better sound system. But uh, when we first opened, we didn't have a video board either. Mm. I remember going to Portland and buying a used video board because you know, at the time we were making money, but we were still finishing the venue. So we uh, we bought a used video board, and I think we used that two or three years. And then we went through a Thomas and Mac went through another renovation. We got some money from the state and did a nice video board. So I think that's when, uh, you know, Sean had all of the components he needed to, you know, take that timing and then, you know, turn up the the volume and 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 the energy, uh, and you know, really produce some uh, you know, more of a more of a production around the uh, competition. So let's go back though. Were you turning out the lights and doing fireworks and things like the rebels were? Well, the rebels started the fireworks. Yeah, uh, the uh, interesting kind of rebels kind of led the led the way in the day. I'll never forget the the uh, story behind the fireworks. Is uh, we had a kiss concert at Thomas and Mac, and uh, the um, operations manager was a real innovative guy named Mike, Mike Enoch, and he came to me the next day when well, I came to my office and I said, "Mike, if they can do fireworks at Kiss, why can't we do them in the arena?" And he just disappeared. I mean, he just like he didn't say a word. He walked out of my office, and a week later, he says, "We can do fireworks." <laughs> so, uh, you know, Rebels had a famous uh, light show, but it was the shark, and it was the spotlights going around, and then they added the, the 
pyro. So uh, Rebels came up with the with the uh, fireworks show first. Yeah, which was awesome. Yeah, it was. So, okay, how has TMC, it's now we're talking about production, and we're Thomas Mack Center. Clearly you've been involved with this, that where it's at now. Let's talk about, like, where it was. This is more of just the facility itself. It went from somewhere where it was 80s and 90s to where it's at now. There was, there was a nice evolution of Thomas Mack Center. Well, probably the, the key change for us and the contestants in the NFR was the uh, tunnel, the second tunnel. Because if you were here in 85, I think it was 90, when we did the, uh, the first uh, contract, uh, and the way we were able to renew the contract is come up with a million more dollars. And what we did is uh, we uh, got the funding to add a tunnel on the south end of the venue. What we were doing before that is all the timed events would uh, literally, there was a moat around the uh, arena. And so if you're sitting in the front row, you're looking, you're staring at uh, Joe Beaver. I mean, Joe Beaver would be kind of coming right by you and there (laughs) there he is. So He uh, actually talked about that in his interview. Yeah, I mean, it was... (laughs) They just uh, uh, and again, you kind of, as a fan, you're like, oh, cool, this is look at this, I've got them right here. So, uh, but from a show perspective, not good. Uh, so, two things we were able to do is by uh, by adding the tunnel, we pulled out four rows, four or five rows, and that's where the gold buckle seats came in at 250 bucks a piece. You do the math, it was 400, 450 or so times 10 days, times 250, a million dollars. And yeah. we added to a million dollars per. So there was the the first increase in the purse, but it did two things. It paid the Cowboys more, and it uh, it added a, a, a much better, a much more, a better timing for the production of timed events. Yeah, I mean, that tunnel definitely sped everything up. I mean, it creates a whole new asset. And then obviously Cox Pavilion, uh, everything that that serves over there. Um Let's talk about one of the caveats that I don't think this happens a lot of events in other cities. How did this whole free bus shuttle? I mean that that's brilliant. Well, I think the that's the uniqueness of Vegas. This is a uh, the most most innovative. Uh, this is a get this is a get it done city, and we were experiencing some really bad problems with traffic, and we were bringing in seventeen thousand people a night. Um, it take them forever to get in, take them forever to get out. I mean, some couldn't get in for. 20 minutes till after the rodeo was started. So um, we looked at creative ways and we thought the only way is to get more, more of this traffic off the street. So we started with uh, buses. At first we, we charged three bucks a trip uh, and it did okay. I think we, you know, maybe 10% of the crowd, 15% of the crowd. And I said, that isn't good enough. So um, we, five years into it, uh, went to free bus transportation and literally now, you do not have to pay for, uh, you stay in any one of our 16, 18 uh, host hotels, uh, sponsored hotels, you have bus transportation to and from Thomas and Max. So there is an experience that we've been talking about this whole time, and this is something that I'm 100% for certain that you created um, or birthed, right? Where, where did this, and this is where I love the marketing mind of you, where did this NFR experience, when did you start like just quantifying this and seeing how this drives everything that you do around the rodeo at the uh, Thomas Mack Center. Well you, well, you know, we have all these great things going on. You got this great rodeo. I mean, I mean, the, I don't know if there's a, there isn't another live event that can touch it. Uh, the, uh, and you got everything that's going on around it. Well, you got to get the word out. Uh, so slowly but surely, and, and I think the timing of digital media 
uh, it was just a perfect, perfect timing. And uh, what we did is uh, with the marketing department is just very aggressively went from a, I think we had, uh, we started this in 2001 or two, I think we had 10,000 in our mailing list. Mm-hmm. And we do an, called an email blast at the time, once a month. Uh, uh, and now you can probably, uh, you can probably recite the, uh, the <laughs> digital uh, impressions and how we're reaching. But to me, uh, what I okay. see, what I see is connecting to our fans 365 days a year. Um, and, uh, so the NFR is not, is now, it's now year round. Uh, I mean, a good example of, is this podcast is, uh, and I think it's real important, not that we just uh, sell Vegas, uh, sell uh, the national finals rodeo, but that we let fans and contestants year in weigh in on their experiences, you know, experiences getting here, experiences when they get here. Uh, and the rest does itself. And so I think the, the fact that we've, you know, in this day and age, you have just creative ways of connecting to your fans and then growing fans. Uh, we just took advantage of that. But, and then we touched on this with Bo, and I, I think this is interesting coming from you too, or to hear from you. Um, okay, so we don't just, you know, sit here and wait for you to come in and come up with ideas, right? There is an experience that takes, there's an NFR experience for us internally that starts probably first, second week of January, the critique, you know, that, the approach on that, I, to me, is where we get in, down and dirty, knees deep, everything that we need to do. But where did the critique start? I mean, was that right away when you came on board? Yeah, no, I think it evolved. Uh, I think we did, yeah, we did a critique. But, you know, it didn't start till June. Uh, you know, we just didn't, it, there just didn't seem to be the urgency. But then as we created more of these opportunities, these sponsorships, and just seemed like more and more opportunities. So, uh, that grew, and then it seemed like, yeah, it creeped back. The, uh, the date we started prepping, and you may start in January, but I'm doing it in December. With the, <laughs> uh, you know, I got my, my little, uh, now it's Evernote. It used to be a, uh, a little pad that I, I would, but, uh, you know, that's the fun thing about uh, producing an event like the NFR. This is 35 years. Uh, you, at, you get a, an opportunity every year to make that a little better, and you go back, you go back over, you go back 10 years and look at it, what it was then and look at it, what it is now. And then kind of envision Vegas when we get our new convention center and when this city, uh, it just gives you goosebumps. Uh, and so uh, I think the fact that we had so many opportunities and we have a, a, a team like we do here at LVE that is, uh, they really are looking for, uh, I think their, their, their definition of success isn't so much selling tickets or even visitors. It's the, it's the process, and it's all these different different uh, things they can do to enhance the experience. Uh, so that's what's fun. Uh, just a little note. I, this is the way I look at it, right? We it's training. It's kind of like a, a pro sport. We train three hundred and fifty five days, and once we get to that ten days, it's game time. And you know, everything pays off for everything we do from that process, and it's it's a beautiful thing. And again, giving kudos to the staff, one of the reasons this continues to do what it does is you, the, the staff, every year they're a whole, I'd say like five years smarter. Because when you start thinking about, and you're constantly thinking of making something, you start with that and start with the right people, then uh, all kinds of things happen. So I think this uh, the team should take a hundred percent of the credit for the uh, the process and the passion that they have 
for uh, making this event for these fans the best 10 days that they're going to, to have all year long. So what this is kind of a bigger picture. So what is the different, you know, kind of the different about NFR citywide event compared to something like the Super Bowl and All-Star game, which we've had here? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. You, uh, Super Bowl, it's so media-driven. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of people, wherever the Super Bowl is, there's so many more around the world uh, watching the Super Bowl. Yeah, the, the, the beauty of the National Finals Rodeo is it's, it's got a niche. It's very unique. But in terms of the event itself, it, it really blows away. Uh, the uh, the experience of the Super Bowl. The Super Bowl doesn't um, put together a 10-day experience like the National Finals Rodeo. Uh, it has things that fans, you know, it has a great fan experience. It has all corporate parties. But for the most part, it doesn't touch the fans like the NFR does. So uh, the NFR experience, that is what it was meant to be, is you got 10 days. Uh, during those 10 days, uh, Anything we can envision a fan enjoying or participating in is something that we would, you know, if we don't have it here now, we're thinking of it. Yeah. So, you know, to wrap this up, how, how do you, NFR, how do you keep growing future? What are some kind of just some little takes that you think of what's coming and, and where we're going with this? You know, back in the uh, late 80s, the growth of the NFR, you'd kind of look at the hotel and, uh, the joke would be every year our fans came here, there's a new hotel to stay in. <laughs> and that went on for like 10, 12 years. Yeah. So Vegas became a new experience every year during the period of growth. Well, now it's uh, the next five, 10 years, it's going to be a new experience that you see every year. And uh, next year you'll see the, the first, uh, the stadium. It could be, who knows, could be a concert at the stadium. Probably not this year, but when you look at the, the you know, that you've got a 65,000 seat stadium, you know, Cowboy Christmas in 21 will move to a uh, convention center, brand new hall, uh, the two point, uh, over $2 billion of improvements, mm. modernized venue. It's, it's going to have an underground uh, speed train that uh, takes you from one end of the hall to the other in like two minutes. Uh, so you're going to be in one of the most modern, well, probably will be the most modern convention center. So Cowboy now Cowboy Christmas will have a more dimensional show. You look mm -hmm. at the, you know, we've uh, the South Hall has been a little bit of a challenge because it's so long. We'll you know, we'll get back to more of a symmetrical uh, configuration, but all the new bells and whistles. So you know, with Cowboy Christmas, and then the um, uh, the little the the, uh, the the jewel lying in the weeds here is a, a venue called the Sphere. Uh, it's going, it's Madison Square Garden's building it. It's already a billion five property. Uh, it's going to be an 18,000 seat theater that has uh, state of the art is really not doing it justice. It's, the, it's going to have a video screen that goes from the floor to the ceiling and from side of the building to the side of the building. That's 100 times brighter than anything that's out there today. It's going to have acoustics. It's going to have sound that is synced to every seat. Mm. Uh, so if you're, if you're doing a, a conference and the uh, guy next to you is Chinese and you're American, well, he can hear it in Chinese and you're going to hear American. Nice. Could you imagine the acoustics of Oof. that versus a normal sound with speakers? There won't be any speakers. I mean, hard for people to fathom. It's kind of like cellular, the cellular phone. How do, you, how, do you, how do you get along without telephone wire? How do you? Yeah. So 
and then you got bass in the seat. So uh, you got those three elements, and you get to George World. We got a couple more hotels coming on. So I think what you'll see is we'll continue to move the needle on the experience. I think Cowboy Christmas is always going to get better. Hotels are always going to come up with new and unique uh, things. So I see the experience growing. Our, our sellout isn't Thomas and Mac. Our sellout's the city, mm. and uh, we're not there yet. Uh, and so if we could, you know, that we could do that over 10 days, uh, maybe I can retire then. <laughs> I know we're up for the challenge. Pat, this was great. Thank you for your time. You're a president. I know you got uh, very zero time for things. So thank you, thank you for coming on. This was awesome. Love getting to know you. Uh, you're welcome. Uh, enjoy it. Uh, looking forward to another uh, great National Finals Rodeo. Thanks for listening to the NFR Extra podcast. And make sure to give us a rating and review on wherever you listen to NFR Extra. For more information regarding the Wrangler National Finals Rodeo, visit NFRExperience.com and follow Las Vegas NFR on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube. NFR Extra. All dirt. All rodeo. All year. Gotta make it out to Vegas, where the big boys roam. With the Rovers and the Racers and the Bulls and the Browns. And the ladies in the skin-tight ringers and the cowboy hat.